Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Josephine Schultz. How are you doing today, Josephine? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me as well. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. So tell us about yourself. Where are you from and how did you get into this line of work? Uh, Yeah, so I grew up in Germany originally. So far, far away from the sea, about a six hours drive was the closest you would get to any sea. And then um, it wasn't really until I did an exchange in my teenage years in the US where I learned to surf. And then there, I really fell in love with the sea and just all the nature that came with it. And um, then I went to study in Scotland for both my bachelor's and master's. And that's really where I got to get way, way, way more into the fields and uh, just enjoying nature around us but um, yeah from Germany originally then lived in Scotland and a little bit all over since and now I'm in Norway. Very nice where did you go to school in Scotland? Uh, For my undergraduate it was in Aberdeen both on the east coast and then for the master's it was at the University of St Andrews. Okay I had a feeling I feel Mm. like anybody who's in marine mammals. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah it's a quite popular place. A lot yeah. of very, very nice and good people there. Amazing. Um, so when you're not doing marine science, what do you like to do? Yeah, so here in Norway, it's great. There's so much you can do. Um, so I just today came back from a round of skiing. So the skiing season seems to be on again, which is great. And I go climbing. I work on a boat at the moment. So that's most of my day spent on the sea. And then when I was living in Scotland, I would also surf a lot. There's not much of that here where I live in Norway. Uh, I would have to travel a little bit for that. But yeah, just spend as much time outside as possible. But I also like to just 
you know, paint and knit and chill out sometimes as well. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Um, so we're here to discuss your recent paper, Humpback Whale Song Revolutions Continue to Spread from Central into Eastern South Pacific. So tell us a little bit about this study. What initiated your research question um, and why did you choose to study this topic? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I, I was able to do this study um, as part of my master's research and master th- uh, master's degree. And um, so previously, uh, we've already seen that there's song transmissions going through the through most of the South Pacific. But the question was always how far it spreads, whether it goes across the entire South Pacific or not. And yeah, just kind of what the extent is, because we've seen the, the same trend from Australia all the way to French Polynesia to go eastwards and um, regularly across all the populations in the South Pacific up to French Polynesia. But we didn't really know what happens afterwards, whether it spreads, whether it turns around, whether it just doesn't do the same thing at all. So that's really the, the background of um, of the research. And when my supervisor, Ellen Garland, uh, suggested that I could work on this data, I just did a little bit of background reading and I was sold <laughs> pretty much immediately. Uh, it's just really fascinating how and why, and the more you do it, there's just more questions you have. So yeah, that's really how I got into it. Definitely. Yeah, no, I, I think vocalizations are one of the most interesting things that we can study with cetaceans. Hmm. Um, so tell us how you went on to conduct this study. How did you collect the data? Just overall methods. Yeah, yeah. So the methods, um, most of the data that I worked on, or actually all of the data that I worked on, uh, was already collected because the master's program is very intense and uh, there's not a lot of time because the whole thing is just a year. And uh, you start working on the thesis a little bit earlier already, but the the core of it is about three months. So in the three months, I did the most of the study and then I continued after the after the master's was done. And um, the way they collected this is by both passive acoustic recordings and both-based, more opportunistic recordings, both in uh, Morea in French Polynesia and then off the coast of Esmeraldas in Ecuador. And um, based on these recordings, we could go through and find the best quality ones. And then we try to get a recording from the beginning, from the middle and the end of the season to be most representative of how it also changes throughout the season. And um, yeah, then we went from there to really get into classifying each sound or each unit um, that we, we could see and we could hear. And we took it from there. Definitely. So how do you classify the different sounds and units? Right. So for that, uh, maybe it's good to know just how the song is uh, built up in general. So at the lowest level, um, we can classify a single sound as a unit. And then several units make up a phrase when they repeat in a specific pattern. And then those phrases can then be classified into themes. And then several themes make up a song. And that lasts between five and 30 minutes. Uh, But there's different parameters on how to classify each unit. So it's uh, both the frequency or also the frequency range at which is produced the sound. And then it's also the shape, whether it's ascending, descending, things like that. Uh, Also, whether 
it changes a lot in frequency, so whether it's modulated. Uh, so there's many different parameters like that, or also the um, duration of the sound itself. And based on that, um, we follow a catalog to match it to a classification and to a name um, that will be the same in all of the previous studies as well. So you can really compare it across the South Pacific. Definitely. So what did you guys find then? And what does what do your findings mean? Yeah, so we have song from three years, um, both in French Polynesia and Ecuador from the same year. So from 2016 to 18. And um, the song that we found in French Polynesia that we classified there, we found, uni uh, we found themes of that song in Ecuador in 2018. So this just means that uh, it does seem to continue spreading the same way that uh, we saw the pattern all the way to French Polynesia before. And yeah, that's great news. That's very interesting. And that just brings even more questions uh, because the distance between Australia and French Polynesia is similar to the distance from French Polynesia to Ecuador but there's not many populations in between. So there was an idea that maybe the song doesn't actually spread there. So with this study, we could show that it does. What we can't say is whether it's a regular pattern because we've just found it once. Um, but there's definitely reason to believe that this could just be a repeated pattern. Wow, okay. And these are two, so basically we're seeing similar sounds in different populations that are... Mm -hmm to not cross the same path yeah <laughs> interesting so how do we like is what are the theories as to why yeah so there's many well there's a few different ideas because the populations themselves are genetically distinct and also the photo id matches show that except for a few individuals here and there that seem to be more like the exception um they don't really mix on the breeding grounds. So the humpback whales have a strong fidelity to their breeding grounds uh, over winter. And then also at the same, in the same way to the feeding ground, yeah, to the feeding grounds uh, near the Antarctic Peninsula and the Antarctic continent. So how they could learn it is either by having similar migration routes. This was um, something that was mostly hypothesized as well around Australia and uh, New Caledonia and New Zealand, because the migration routes are quite similar, or maybe they have a migratory stopover that's the same. So there's physical contact in a way, or acoustic contact between the populations so they could exchange sounds. Or maybe on the feeding grounds, there's some overlap. If they go to roughly the same area, maybe there's a little bit of overlap between some individuals so they can exchange. And uh, otherwise, there could be, yeah, immigrants basically from one population to the other bringing the new song, but then that would have to be a repeated pattern as well. So, given the distance between the two populations that we have between French Polynesia and Ecuador, we think the most likely hypothesis is on the feeding grounds, just because they're not they're not very likely to have overlapping migration routes, and uh, having individuals cover this much of a distance repeatedly at least hasn't been shown so yeah most likely on the feeding grounds there seems to be some overlap wow that's really interesting um i feel like whales are just always showing us that we don't 
know anything. Like we think we know things. Yeah. And they're like, just kidding. We're going to do something else. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> so based on it, like why is understanding this important? It just shows us how connected the South Pacific is in the population. So because they all go to Antarctica to feed, of course, the health of Antarctica is important, but also if one population is at risk or is not doing so well, that seems to possibly have an effect on the other populations if they're all connected like this. So just understanding better how everything is connected is very important, both for conservation, but also just to better understand the, the cultural transmission of this, um, of the song and also to better understand how far it goes, where it might have originated. So it's both the scientific uh, knowledge, that's why we want to know, but also for conservation, of course, we need to know how much each population is connected to the other, even though they seem to be doing their own thing. Definitely, that totally makes sense. Um, Could this information be helpful in conservation efforts? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So if you want to conserve one of the populations, but you know that they're connected to the others, whatever you do to one um, would also affect the others, possibly. We don't really know how much. I, I mean, nobody knows if uh, if you took one away, whether the pattern would continue, whether it would actually have an effect on the health of them. But the point is that the cultural, the culture that's transmitted is going through all the populations. So it seems to matter to all of them. So conservation should also look at a more whole um, area or like a more holistic approach. Definitely. So based on this study, do you have any other publications that you're looking to, you know, produce like based off of this and kind of bouncing off of this research? Not me at the moment, (laughs) but I'm sure that uh, Ellen and uh, my co-supervisors in Ecuador, Judith uh, Denkinger and Javier Ona, and then also in French Polynesia, Michael Paul, they've been working on all of these things for longer. And uh, maybe I will get <laughs> the, the, the privilege to be part of the studies again, but uh, it's not the plan for now, but for sure the research will continue because it just brings up even more questions now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just really interested in the noise pollution or just the acoustics of, um, yeah, the acoustic environment of of the the whales everywhere in the world, but especially in the polar regions as they're becoming more accessible to all of us. And um, yeah, that's quite the concern because they might have not been um, as disturbed before and may become way more disturbed. And there's so many questions we have about what the hearing uh, capabilities are, what actually does, uh, what actually is a threshold to disturb the animal, but also, yeah, just understanding better how they need to have their quiet time to to effectively communicate. So that's something that's very interesting um, to me as well, especially here up in Norway in the Arctic, and then I have um, worked in Antarctica before as well. So just seeing the, the tourism and also the vessel traffic increase, Yeah, it's just something that's really interesting to me. Absolutely. So, yeah, I know Norway is very unique with their um, tourism up there because they have in the water um, activities, which I've had someone else on the podcast to discuss it who went to Norway. Um, I'm Mm. curious as to what impact you think 
the tourism has or that type of tourism has on these animals? Yeah, I think there's different ways to to do this tourism. So it always depends. Um, whale watching can be, I believe that whale watching can be very uh, useful of a tool to show show people nature and bring them closer to nature and make them care, right? But it has to, of course, be done in a way where you minimize the effect on the animals. And uh, that can be done by, yeah, just reducing the speed, but also keeping a distance and just being really careful and aware of the behaviors and having, um, yeah, I don't know, staff that's well-trained, for example. So there's definitely ways to to make it as um, least invasive as possible. For the swimming with whales, I don't know. I haven't uh, heard exactly how loud it is or how much louder it is. Uh, for the animals, especially when they're feeding, maybe they're so focused on the feeding that they don't really mind as much, but maybe they would uh, be happier without the noise. There isn't um, terribly much published on this feeding ground uh, where the whale watching industry is quite big. So, yeah, we don't really know yet. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, I work on a whale watching boat in California, and so I'm always mm to hear people's perspectives on tourism and things like that because I do think we walk a fine line sometimes you know where it can be yeah definitely exploitive or we can have it be beneficial for the wildlife so it's always important I think to consider what our actions are and especially like listening to scientists about like what's going on out there um yeah I've always I don't know I don't think I'd get in the water with a killer whale because I feel like it's just a matter of time before somebody gets hurt like it's got it's called a killer whale for a reason you know <laughs> yeah and I mean it's dark up here as well so I think it's uh yeah it's also it must be so hard to find the swimmers uh, individually yeah. in the water when it gets dark but yeah it seems to work so far definitely um <coughs> A uh, question I always ask people is, what can we learn from the whales? What can we learn from the whales? Yes. I think just a different way of seeing the world. Because mm -hmm. we, for us, our main sense is uh, seeing. And of course, everything else comes into play as well. We hear and we smell and we taste. But the first way of perceiving the world is usually by sight. For sure. Whereas for whales, it's just by sounds. Mm -hmm. So just like we're more aware of not staring into the sun and uh, yeah, just being aware of keeping our eyesight as healthy as possible. Um, yeah, I think it's just interesting to imagine seeing everything just by sound. And then if you if you go through even just the city, uh, just your local town and uh, you just listen to everything that's around, I think you'll be surprised by how many different sounds you can pick up but also by how much noise. So it just makes you a bit more aware of how they must perceive yeah, their world. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely, I feel like that's a good answer. We haven't gotten that answer yet. <laughs> same answers, but that's a new one. So I like it. Do you have a favorite answer um, so far? One that surprised you the most or something like that? Let's see. I've gotten a lot of like people being like, oh, like rely on your community because orcas are, this was mostly an orca podcast for a while. Mm. Um, <laughs> let's see. Yeah, no, I think like, I like the answers that have to do with like resilience. Um, mm. I like that theme of like, you know, whales being resilient and surprising and like, you know, being okay with things being surprising or not what you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> 
I would say those are probably some of my favorite answers. But well, thank you so much for being here. Um, and thanks everybody for listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye.